Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. As you saw in the bulletin, as we passed by it, the 11 o'clock service, we're going to baptize a little Levi Clausen, Ryan and Jessica's baby. As you see the bowl sitting down here, no water in it yet. I hope you don't forget. Um, one of the most delightful things I get to do as a pastor is baptize children. But I didn't grow up believing in baptism. And I realized that for many sincere believing in infant baptism. I realize that for many sincere believers, what uh, we will do this morning, what we do routinely in this church, is uh, really a strange sight for them. At the same time, I also know that for many others, uh, baptizing children is just a comfortable old ritual, and nobody ever asks why. It's just what we do. And so this morning, as we have a baptism in our church, rather than just doing that and moving on, I decided to focus our attention again on this matter of the relationship of our children to the Lord. I don't think for a moment I'm going to convince anyone of uh, infant baptism this morning. It's a big subject. It's a difficult subject. It really is hangs on our understanding of the whole overarching covenantal uh, uh, structure of the scriptures. And here at the chapel, we've always had some difference of opinion on this subject, but still Whatever we believe about baptism, we must listen to what God says about our children, and that's what this text is also, is really about. So let's go back to Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. Let me read it. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. This passage teaches us two uh, powerful truths, I think. And the first one is this. That Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. It's amazing how having children changes your life. I remember many years ago when Jane and I had children, and suddenly there were a lot of things that we were used to doing that we couldn't do anymore. Sometimes because of the inconvenience to us, but often because children were just not included in that event. Well, something like that's happening here in Mark chapter 10. There was an excitement in the air. Jesus, the great teacher and healer, was in town. And the crowd was gathering, and uh, droves wanted to see him and hear him. And suddenly, some people had the audacity to bring their children along. And then to interrupt Jesus and ask him to touch their children and bless them. I'm sure you can imagine this scene. Parents trying to insert their children where they obviously uh, didn't fit in an adult-only situation. Well, fortunately, the apostles were right on top of this one. They weren't going to let this interruption take place. And so they rebuked those parents who tried that. Ah, but Jesus turns it around and rebukes them and welcomed the little children. For Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. Now, as we look more carefully at what happened here, let me make three observations as we've just 
reflect on that for a few moments. The first observation I have is that these were babies. It doesn't seem to say that here. It just says little children. But there are actually several different Greek words that Mark could have used to describe um, these kids that were brought. Helpful to know the difference and to see why he might have chosen the word he chose. There are three Greek words for children. One is pice. That's a general word for children. It tends to mean children between the ages of about 7 and 14 years. None of the gospel writers include use that word in this text, although three gospel writers have this account. Then there's the word paideia. That's a diminutive form of pice. It means little child or very young child or it can mean infant. In other words, one who was certainly not more than about seven years old, but could be any age less than that. And this is the word that Mark uses, and this is the word that uh, Matthew uses, paideia, a very young child. But there's another Greek word for children, brephe, a word meaning baby, or infant, or newborn, or unborn child, embryo. That's the word that Luke uses, brephe. So you see what happens here. Matthew and Mark use a word that can mean little children as young as infants, but not more than about seven. Luke uses a word that can only mean infants. So we put the three gospel writers together, and what do we learn? Jesus was dealing with babies. Indeed, Mark indicates that same thing in verse 16 when he tells us Jesus took the children in his arms. I pick up lots of kids. I love kids. I hope they know that I love them. I think they do. I pick up lots of kids. I almost never pick up a 15-year-old. Or even a 7-year-old. You pick up babies. You pick up toddlers, little ones. Folks, Jesus includes our babies in his kingdom. Second observation. Jesus did something significant to these children. You know, we're used to cute little gestures involving kids. You know, politicians kissing babies, that kind of thing. But Jesus didn't do cute little meaningless acts. We don't find any of that kind of thing in the gospel accounts. So what did Jesus do with these children? The NIV translation says rather casually, he put his hands on them. The King James Version says a bit more literally, he laid hands on them. Now there are 40 times in the New Testament, 40 times, when this expression laying hands on someone is used. It's mentioned in connection with healing. It's mentioned in connection with baptism. It's mentioned in connection with the giving of the Holy Spirit to a new group of people. It's mentioned in connection with ordination or commission for ministry. So it would be very strange, would it not, if in this one place it meant nothing more than a pat on the head. In fact, the Dictionary of New Testament Theology, which is a rather unbiased Greek uh, uh, dictionary, explains, I quote, This gesture of blessing symbolizes the gracious offer of a share in the kingdom of God made to those who are not of age. John Calvin explains it even more pointedly. He writes, when others contend that we are reconciled to God 
and become heirs of the adoption only by faith, we confess that this is true of adults. But that it applies also to infants, this passage proves to be false. The laying on of hands was certainly no frivolous or empty symbol, nor did Christ pour forth his prayers into the empty air. But he could not solemnly present them to God without giving them purity. And what was his prayer for them but that they should be received among the children of God? From this it follows that they were regenerate by the Spirit in the hope of salvation. And finally that he embraced them was a testimony that Christ reckoned them in his flock. Oh, make no mistake, Jesus did something significant in receiving these children. Now, this passage never mentioned baptism, I admit that. But it's difficult not to see some justification here for baptizing our infant children. For clearly God has not abandoned his plan to include our children in his covenant. Jesus includes them in his kingdom. Then the third observation in this first point, and that is hindering children makes Jesus mad. Hindering children makes Jesus mad. There's an expression used here in verse 14 that's found nowhere else in the Bible. Jesus was indignant. Indignant. The apostles rebuked people for bringing their children, and Jesus turned around and rebuked the apostles. He commanded them to stop hindering these children. The children were not coming of their own free will, you understand. They weren't old enough. They were being being brought by their parents. But Jesus said, stop holding them away from me. And he was indignant with them until they allowed the children to come. I don't know about you, I'm not so anxious to have Jesus indignant with me. So if that's the case, this text indicates we'd better not hinder our children from coming to him. You see, whether we include children in God's kingdom or not is not just a matter of personal preference. Christ commands that they be included, and he is indignant when they are not. As I think about this a bit, I realize that hindering our children from coming to the Lord is a rather big issue. It's not just about when they're infants. It has to do with their whole upbringing. So I thought of some ways we might hinder our children I could go on for a long time about this, but let me just mention a few. Well, we can refuse to acknowledge that they're part of the covenant right up front and just act like they're all little unbelievers until they grow up and can make their own decisions. That's hindering them. That's what the apostles had in mind. Or we can acknowledge that they're part of the covenant but refuse to train them, just let them grow up and not ever really discipline them and train them in godliness and if we do this, we hinder, that we hinder them, for we allow them to go their sinful way. And Jesus is indignant with us. Or conversely, we can train them. So, overzealously, we can train them with such harshness that we virtually guarantee that the moment they're out of our house, they'll bolt and never have anything to do with the Lord again. And we hinder them. And Jesus is displeased. Or we can educate them year after year and all the things that, the, all the knowledge of the world and never bother to mention that all truth belongs 
to God and then be surprised when they suddenly find God irrelevant in their real world and we've hindered them. And Jesus is indignant. Or we can hinder them by filling their lives with other things, filling their lives with sports and filling their lives with gymnastics and filling their lives with parties and filling their lives with fun things. And So there's no time to come to Jesus and learn of him and become his disciple. And we're hindering them. And Jesus is indignant. Or very worst of all, we can say all the right things and show up in church every day and every Sunday and look all wonderful and fine, but at home live in such a way that our children see our hypocrisy and come to loathe this hypocritical Christianity that they've seen and determined to never have any part of it themselves. And we've hindered them, driven them away, slammed the door of the kingdom on their fingers, and Jesus is indignant. This morning, with all my heart, I call you to bring your children to Jesus. I firmly believe that begins with baptizing them as infants, but it certainly does not end there. It means much, much more than that. It has to do with all of life, all of our expectations, all of our goals, all of our plans, all of our schedule, all of our example, all of our teaching, all of our discipline, all of our compassion. Do not hinder your children from coming to the Savior, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said so, not me. That's the first thing we need to learn from this text. But then there's a second, very different truth also here. That's this. Jesus only accepts the helpless. Jesus only accepts the helpless. After many years in the military, I'm always amused at armed forces advertising. They realize kids don't know what they're getting into. Look at the Air Force. It's a great way where I see those airplanes zooming up there. Man, that could be you. Come and join up. Yeah, you want to bet? There are a few other requirements they don't ever mention. You have to have a college degree. You have to pass endless batteries of tests. You have to have perfect vision, 20-20, not colorblind, good peripheral vision. You can never have been knocked unconscious, not even in a football game. You must be at least five foot six inches tall, not more than six foot three, et cetera, et cetera. The many, many requirements behind the big welcoming invitation to come join up. What about God's kingdom? Is it like that? Does he really welcome people like us? Or behind his big wide open welcome are there a lot of requirements that we may not actually meet and it may not really be open to us. Here Jesus addresses the question, who may enter the kingdom? That's the most profound human question there is. It's the question behind every religion of the world. Who may enter the kingdom? Who may be pleasing in God's sight? Who may know God? Now, concerning this question, the Bible has very much to say. It tells us of God's holiness and his wrath against sin. It tells us of his law, which defines the holiness that he requires and condemns us when we don't live up to it. It tells of his love and how he gave his son. It tells of atonement for sin, first of shadowy forms in Old Testament sacrifices. And then perfectly, as Jesus lays down his life, on the cross for us. It tells 
of uh, the, our, the response which God requires, of repentance from sin, of turning away from every other hope and trusting in the Savior. But in the formulating of all those things that the Bible has to say, and in working out all the details about what God says about entering his kingdom, sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. So Jesus, ignoring all of our volumes of theology books, goes right to the heart of the matter. In verse 15, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see the point? Not only does Jesus include little children in his kingdom, there's a sense in which Jesus includes only little children. At least those who come as little children. In other words, Jesus only accepts the helpless. So what does it mean to be childlike? Well, it doesn't mean to physically be a infant again. That was Nicodemus's hang-up. How can you enter your mother's womb again? It certainly doesn't mean to be mentally childlike. The God who made our minds does not ask us to throw away our minds in order to enter his kingdom. He asks us to love him with all of our minds. It certainly doesn't mean to be childlike in the sense of foolish irresponsibility. God calls such folly sin and he, and, and, and he doesn't glorify our foolishness. And we're not called to regain some childlike innocence because the truth is the Bible tells us children are not innocent. They're born in sin. They go astray from the womb. So some have suggested that childlikeness is a reference to simple faith. To believe and trust wholeheartedly like a child believes and trusts wholeheartedly. And there's some truth to that. Faith is certainly the means by which we come to God. And children certainly can give us some great examples of simple faith. May I suggest that the truth of our text is even more profound than that? That there is no ability or quality characteristic of children that makes them more acceptable to God. They are received because of their characteristic inability. Colin Brown makes this exact point. Let me read a quote from you. He says, Jesus' pronouncement reverses the understanding, the apparent understanding of the disciples. Instead of insisting that men should be mature enough to make a responsible commitment, Jesus is saying that there's a sense in which the reverse is true. The reason why the kingdom belongs to children is not because of any subjective qualities they may have, it lies in their objective helplessness. Jesus only accepts the helpless. The late New Testament scholar William Lane makes the same point. Let me quote. The ground of Jesus' surprising statement is not to be found in any subjective quality possessed by children, but rather in their objective humbleness and in the startling character of the grace of God, who wills to give the kingdom to those who have no claim on it. 
The kingdom may be entered only by one who knows he is helpless and small without claim and without merit. The unchildlike piety of achievement must be abandoned. That was the issue for the Apostle Paul, you remember? Saul of Tarsus, he was called. He was so self-sufficient in his great theological knowledge and his pious life and his religious devotion and his spiritual heritage that he could not come to Jesus for that would be an admission that he was powerless and that his efforts were for nothing. Indeed, that would be an admission that he was helpless not acceptable to God as he was. In need of something as ugly as Messiah dying on a cross in his place. But that's exactly the point to which God brought Saul of Tarsus before he could enter this kingdom. He had to count all his own efforts, all his spiritual heritage, all his merit, all his law-keeping, all his piety, he had to consider them and understand that they were nothing but dung in God's eyes. He had to become as helpless as a little baby. And then God gave him the kingdom. Jesus only accepts the helpless. This morning, if you're convinced of your acceptability before God, I must tell you there's no hope for you to enter the kingdom. Sorry, he only accepts the helpless. Oh, but as ominous as this sounds at first, it's a joyous truth. For let's suppose that God did accept us based on our merit. How could I, a mere mortal, ever convince the eternal God to accept me? How could I, a sinful man, ever convince a holy God to accept me? How could I ever be smart enough or devout enough or diligent enough to convince him to lay aside his holiness and ignore my rebellion and my stubborn uh, refusal to do what he says and my selfishness and my greedy ways how could I ever get him to lay all that aside and accept me and even if I could, could convince him to accept me how could I sustain his favor could I guarantee that I would never fail again that my heart would never again turn cold that my motives and actions would never again be impure you see if it depended on us surely there is no hope But the good news is, in his mercy, Christ receives the helpless. So if God in his mercy has brought you painfully to an end of yourself, to realize you are as helpless and hopeless and and unable to save yourself as, as a little baby, then this morning I call you to come to Jesus empty-handed, with no claim, but with the promise that Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. 
For Jesus says the kingdom belongs to such as these. Wesley Chapel is full of children. God has blessed us with many, many little ones. And we rejoice in that, for we understand that Jesus includes our children in his kingdom. But Wesley Chapel is a bunch of children in more ways than one. In the most profound sense, we are a whole church full of little babies. For here we believe that Christ only accepts the helpless. And we freely confess ourselves to be helpless. Helpless, but accepted by God's grace. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your great grace. And it's so easy for us to get into an, a way of thinking that starts to put a lot of emphasis on how well we're doing and all of our merit and all of our rich uh, history and the people we know and the language we've learned to talk to talk about theological things and the Bible verses we've learned. It's easy for us to begin to depend on all of that and to lose sight of the fact that you only accept the helpless and that ultimately we never get over being helpless before you. So Lord, this morning as we delight in the fact that you receive our children, we delight even more in the fact that you receive us like little babies that need grace. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.